Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg, and I'm a children's book author. And I'm Eve Yohalem. I'm also a children's book author. In each episode of this podcast, we use books as a way to explore questions that fascinate us. And in this episode, we consider, as we and so many others often do, what do wild bears and libertarians have in common? It turns out that there is a connection between wild bears and libertarians, or at least between a particular population of wild bears and a particular group of libertarians. Back in 2004, some libertarians founded a movement called the Freetown Project, basically a plan to take over a town and turn it into a libertarian utopia. The town they chose was Grafton, New Hampshire. Grafton has a history of resistance to taxation that goes back to the revolution, but the Freetowners' low government vision was too much even for Graftonites. Enter investigative reporter Matt Hongold-Tetling. Matt was in Grafton working on a story about a woman who was in conflict with the Veterans Administration when he discovered, quite by chance, that the bears in the area were acting very strangely. He dug deeper and discovered surprising reasons for their behavior that connected to the Freetown movement, a journey he details in his book, A Libertarian Walks into a Bear, The Utopian Plot to Liberate an American Town and Some Bears. It's a strange, funny, and disturbing story, and we can't wait to share it with you. But first, a few words about Matt. Matthew Hongoltz Hetling is a freelance journalist specializing in narrative features and investigative reporting. He's been a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and been voted Journalist of the Year by the Maine Press Association, and he's won a George Polk Award, among numerous other honors. Matt's work has appeared in Foreign Policy, USA Today, Popular Science, Atavist Magazine, Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting, the Associated Press, and elsewhere. We started by asking Matt to give us a quick overview of the Freetown Project, which Matt has called, quote, the boldest social experiment in modern history. Here's what he said. The basic idea was that uh, libertarians didn't have anywhere to kind of like call their own. You know, there are no libertarian countries in the world. There's no libertarian states, not even a libertarian city. And so they thought, you know, boy, if we could just uh, show the world what our principles look like in action, then everybody would want to be a libertarian. And so they put out a national call on message boards in uh, like the early 2000s with this idea that if they all moved to one place, that they could kind of concentrate their voting power and turn it into a libertarian utopia. And they chose a small town in New Hampshire called Grafton and started telling everybody, hey, come here, we're building a utopia there. They uh, didn't have the wherewithal to make their own municipal services and, and, you know, water services and stuff like that. So they decided that they had to start with somebody else's town rather than found their own. <laughs> yeah. And, and Grafton has an interesting history going all the way back to the revolution that made it an attractive choice for the Freetowners. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, they didn't pull Grafton out of a hat. Way back, as you said, in the revolutionary era, 
the town of Grafton was really anti-tax. You know, they, they kind of said to themselves, look, we just fought a war against the British to stop paying taxes. And now this Continental Congress of the United States wants us to pay taxes to them. You know, nobody loves taxes, but they took this very unreasonable uh, step in those days where rather than pay taxes to the Continental Congress, they voted to secede from the United States. They instead wanted to join Vermont, which at that time was an independent republic, which did not assess any sort of taxes at the time. And so that was eventually put down by a military action. Uh, George Washington kind of famously threatened them, uh, where he said he was going to leave the British in the field and just come back and wipe Grafton off the map um, <laughs> if they didn't stop messing around. And so they they towed the line. But ever since then, they've kind of like resented this idea of taxation. And there's this deep, deep vein in this town and in this community of being as you know thrifty as possible when it comes to taxes. And so that had actually shaped the character of the town for generations, where they just spent as little as possible on local services. And so when these libertarians with the Freetown Project were looking for the right place to go, they actually visited like 20 towns in the state of New Hampshire, and Grafton won the gold ring. And how did you become interested in Grafton? Which caught your attention first, the Bears or the Freetowners? It was the Bears. It was totally the Bears. I didn't care about the Libertarians. I was working as a reporter for a local newspaper. Uh, Support your local newspapers. That's important. And I was working with a woman who had a beef with the Veterans Administration, a woman named Jessica Soul. And she was uh, disabled. She was from the Vietnam War era of veterans, and she couldn't get her home handicap accessible, basically. And so in, in desperation, she called the newspaper. And so I went to her home to talk to her about that situation. And then, you know, we were just kind of like chit-chatting about her cats. And she said like, oh, yeah, you know, I used to let them outside, but that was before the bears came. And I was like, what do you mean before the bears came? And she started to tell me these amazing stories of bear encounters that she had had in her neighborhood that had frightened her and that had caused her to basically live a life as a shut-in, afraid even to take the garbage to the garbage can in the front of the property for fear that a bear would attack her. And so uh, that got me asking other folks in her neighborhood if they had had similar experiences And it became very, very clear to me after talking to many, many people, there was some really weird bear activity happening in this little zone of rural New Hampshire. And that led me to ask what else is unique about this town? You know, why is this happening? And then I kind of back ended into the libertarian thing. Isn't it fascinating what can lead to a book? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Conversation about cats. Yeah, Um, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about the Freetowners themselves? Were they a homogenous group in terms of demographics, beliefs, practices? I, I guess you could say libertarians come in all shapes and sizes, but they have a best-selling model. And the best-selling model <laughs> of a libertarian is young white man. What really characterized this particular group of uh, libertarians, even more so than the movement as a whole, 
or the political party as a whole was that these were the libertarians who were willing to, at the drop of a hat, move to a random fly spec town in rural New Hampshire that didn't have any associated job prospects, who, who, you know, weren't tied into career jobs, who weren't tied into family life, who just kind of drifted into town. And some of them had money and those that did bought land, but most of them didn't have any money. And so they had to set up the, these kind of non-traditional living situations for themselves. They were living in you know makeshift log cabins and yurts and mobile homes and tents in these little like clustered encampments in the woods on the properties of those who did have money uh, by, by mm. and large. And they really tilted the town demographics. Like if you look at the census data, it's really striking. There was like an enormous imbalance between men and women in, in the town all of a sudden. Uh, they brought that kind of young, swaggering male culture to the town where yeah, suddenly like they were displaying firearms in a very open, aggressive way. They were showing up at town meeting and, and, you know, uh, uh, asserting these values that, that were kind of like, you know, every man intentionally pronoun exclusive for himself. Yeah. You mentioned Jessica Sewell a couple of minutes ago. Mm -hmm. I wonder, can you use the story of what happened to Jessica Sewell and <laughs> fill in some of the detail for us to connect the dots for us between unusual bear behavior on the one hand and libertarian policies on the other? Yes, absolutely. Like Jessica's personal bear stories were pretty harrowing. One of them, which I tell quite early in the book, is when she was outside with her cats, you know, she had uh, three kittens out there and she was sitting at a picnic table in her backyard, enjoying some late night burgers and a bear suddenly burst out of the undergrowth and grabbed up two of the three kittens and um, basically ate them within sight of her. Oh. <laughs> it was pretty horrific. And that was one of the first times that Jessica realized that, that the bears were bolder than they ought to have been. And she also had an incident where she had kind of like a boarded in porch, I guess you would say, it, affixed to the back of her house. And a bear forced its way into there. And then there was a little like, um, like a cubby opening between her kitchen and that area. And the bear was shoving its paw in through that opening, trying to like, you know, grab stuff out of her kitchen. And so that was very terrifying for her. Mm. And then she also had another incident where a bear confronted her on her wheelchair ramp and she was in a wheelchair. You know, um, she had to try to kind of like back up into the house without triggering this bear's attack. She had all sorts of frightening encounters with bears. And the reason, and it's not intuitive, is it? Like, well, what does a libertarian have to do with uh, with bears. Right, right. <laughs> and they were actually impacting bear behavior in three ways. I mentioned briefly that they're living in all these non-traditional housing situations, like the yurts and, and the, the mobile homes and whatnot. One thing that they were doing is they were unintentionally feeding the bears by not managing their garbage and their sewage in, in responsible ways. You know, if you're a libertarian and you're not listening to the state, you're not listening to public health and municipal advice, 
about how to handle your waste responsibly, right? Mm -hmm. And so that was a food source for the bears where they, they started to link the idea of humans and food. The second thing that they did was to feed the bears on purpose. Um, <laughs> some mm, of the people were uh, <laughs> no. you know, just kind of leaving food out for the bears just for the joy of watching them eat. There was a one person who I, I refer to in the book as Donut Lady who was leaving, uh, feeding the bears uh, big piles of grain topped with sugared donuts twice a day, every day for years, like clockwork. So you had bears that were becoming, again, very accustomed to people as a food source. And then the third issue was that, you know, in most places, if you have a problem bear in your area, you call Fish and Game. And Fish and Game comes and they troubleshoot that problem. You know, they might say it's because you have a barbecue grill out there that you're leaving out there with traces of meat on it. And that's bringing the bears in. Or, you know, they'll find some sort of other issue that's uh, tempting the bears. Uh, and if there is a particular problem bear, they will address that. They, they uh, will either relocate or more commonly trap and kill the bear. But if you are a free stater who doesn't believe in government, then you're not going to call <laughs> fish and game. That, that's like the last thing you want to do. So there was a strong culture of handling the bears themselves. And they did that in a variety of boneheaded ways, including booby traps and throwing firecrackers at their heads, putting cayenne pepper on their food waste so the bear would get like a snoutful of cayenne pepper. None of that worked. So, you know, all these things kind of train the bears that desensitize the bears to human interventions and at the same time kept giving them calories and incentives to, to come in and eat. And that is what was driving the bear culture in Grafton. Just to be clear, bear attacks on people are very rare. In fact, there had been no bear attacks at all on people in New Hampshire for over 100 years. And now there have been three, including Jessica Saul, another Grafton resident named Tracy Colburn, and a third woman who lived in the neighboring town. So clearly something has changed that's specific to that area of New Hampshire. Yes, and here's some context for more of the changes that happened in Grafton after the Freetowners arrived. Matt writes, For seven long years, Freetowners joined thrift-minded allies in issuing vociferous challenges to every rule and tax dollar in sight. One by one, expenditures were flayed from the municipal budget. They permanently extinguished most of the town's streetlights to save on electricity bills and discontinued long stretches of dirt road to save on highway materials and equipment. Grafton's municipal offices declined from a state of mere shabbiness to downright decrepitude. Recycling rates dropped from 60% to 40%. The number of annual sex offender registrations reported by police increased steadily from 8 in 2006 to 22 in 2010. That's one in 60 residents. And meanwhile, along with all the tax cutting and deregulating, some municipal expenses went up. Legal bills went from $275 in 2004 to $9,400 in 2011 because of lawsuits. Towns are required by the state to provide public assistance, and those expenses went from under $10,000 a year to more than $40,000 a year in the same time period. 
People who were in need before the Freetowners remained in need after they started imposing their vision on Grafton. Among those people in need were Jessica Saul and the other two victims of bear attacks. All three were vulnerable women living alone. We asked Matt if it's a coincidence that they were attacked by bears or whether their vulnerabilities put them at higher risk. Here's what he said. I don't think that's coincidence. And I think it kind of really strikes at that heart of political philosophy, where if we're saying it's the responsibility of every individual to fend for themselves, the people who that is going to work well for are the people who are, you know, hale and robust and like the idea of grabbing a, a gun from their shed and using it to scare off a varmint. But who it doesn't work out well for are those people who are not hale and hearty and interested in physically defending their homesteads with guns. You have a fascinating section in your book about toxoplasmosis. And I have to confess, I've now decided I need to ask for a toxoplasmosis screening the next time I take my cats to the vet. <laughs> and they're both in the room with me now. They, they look okay, but I, I'm just not you know, taking any chances. Anyway, at, at one point in the book, you say, libertarianism is entirely built up on the appeal of exercising free choice to own a gun, marry indiscriminately, commit suicide, shoot bears, curse in polite society, or buy unhealthy amounts of soda in New York City. That appeal is decidedly less palpable if those choices are actually the product of a parasite. Can you explain how toxoplasmosis may be influencing the humans and the bears in New Hampshire? Yes, I would love to. I will say first, neuroscientists are demonstrating and neuropsychologists are demonstrating more and more that we have much less free will than we think we do. In fact, a lot of our decisions that we think we're making as you know, free and conscious individuals are actually being shaped by you know, very subtle like subconscious processes and physical processes, you know, the, the hormones flooding our brains, and by environmental factors. And one of those environmental factors that kind of like is chipping away at our free will and the free choices that we think we're making is this parasite called T. Gandhi. And uh, one who's infected with the parasite T. Gandhi is said to have toxoplasmosis. It's a little bug that basically breeds inside of a cat. Its mission is to get from cat poop back into the gut of a cat so that it can, you know, meet a pretty other T. Gandhi parasite in those guts and, <laughs> and, and fall in love and have lots of little uh, T. Gandhi babies. And the main way that this parasite accomplishes this is it will infect a rat or some other sort of rodent. It'll basically hijack the rat's brain by manipulating its levels of dopamine and changing its perception so that the rat, which thinks it's making free choice decisions is actually thinking to itself, geez, you want cat urine actually smells pretty good. I never noticed this before, but I, I want to be around cat urine all the time. And also, they manipulate the rat to think, geez, you know, I, I'm not really as afraid as I used to be. I'm more brave. I'm more aggressive. And so when I see signs of a cat in the area, I'm not intimidated anymore. This, of course, 
is to the parasite's purpose, which is to have that rat eaten by a cat so that it can wind up back inside the guts of a cat. The scary thing I should say about T. Gandhi is that it doesn't just infect rats. It, it can infect almost any mammal. And it does the same thing no matter what it's inside. And people aren't clear on whether it does this kind of like on purpose because back in the day it wanted to manipulate a person or a, you know, a yak to get eaten by a saber-toothed tiger or whether it's just, you know, always thinks it's inside a rat. What it does is it influences human behavior and it makes humans very subtly greater risk takers. And there are all sorts of fascinating studies out there about this, how people uh, infected with T. Gandhi get into more um, uh, car accidents because they're taking greater risks. And populations of people that have high levels of toxoplasmosis actually have like higher rates of entrepreneurship because they're taking that sort of a risk of, yeah, I'm going to strike out and uh, make it in the business world. And it makes people more aggressive. One thing that's established is that one of the mammals that has the highest infection rates of T. Gandhi can be bears. In some populations of bears, like 97% of the bears are infected by T. Gandhi. And so my theory is that if you have a place like Grafton, where the bears are actually eating the cats, which is very unusual... And you have large numbers of humans who are not managing their waste properly and thereby providing additional opportunities for bears and cats and people and cat crap to intermix with one another. <laughs> then you are creating just about the most fertile breeding ground for T. Gandhi that you can imagine. No one has been tested for T. Gandhi in the town of Grafton that I'm aware of. But if you were looking for signs of what would an infected human population look like, what you would look for is you would look for people who are acting unusually aggressively and taking greater risks. And that is exactly what you see in the libertarian community that was a part of the Freetown Project in Grafton. And that's why Ember and Magnolia are getting tested for toxoplasmosis. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you say in the book, libertarians have a vision for America that includes lots of personal freedom, very little government, and a pure marketplace that will sort out societal problems like climate change, education inequality, and rising healthcare costs. How exactly is a pure marketplace supposed to sort out societal problems? Like, What's the mechanism that will improve the lives of vulnerable people other than their own bootstraps? Oh, if you had a, um, a pound of marijuana and four nights to sit in front of a campfire with some of these libertarians, they will tell you in great detail uh, <laughs> the answer to that question. Uh, I would ask about things like, you know, well, what, what about... Um, you know, preserving a species that's in danger of being extinct. You know, how, how do you how do you make sure that people don't go and kill you know the last uh, of uh, the passenger pigeons that are nesting, or, or you know, bald eagles that are nesting in this land? If you're not regulating people's hunting, and they say, well, you know, uh, if society sees a value to that, then people will manifest that value by paying in money into a fund, like a voluntary fund that will be used to protect those bald eagles. And I think their answer to um, 
people who are not able to uh, feed themselves, say, due to disability or something like that, that would be the same answer. Just another example. One of the things that the Freetowners hoped to do was defund the local public school district entirely. No more funds for public school. How did they expect kids to get educated? You know, <laughs> is it well, what, the- you know? <laughs> Explain this to me. (laughs) They expect that a private school system will spring up in the free market and that parents, rather than paying taxes into the state, will instead take that money and put it in as tuition at the private school of their choice. And that private school would have a curriculum that would have to be appealing to, to those parents and worthy of their dollars. And what that does is it basically shifts the cost of education from everybody onto the people who actually have kids in direct proportion to the number of kids that they have and let them pay for whatever education they can afford. Mm-hmm. I hear you guys going like, hmm. And like, I'm, uh, I'm not saying that these are good answers. <laughs> yeah, these, no. these, are, these are the answers <laughs> they would give. And I'm trying to give, uh, I'm trying to give them, yep. you know, the, uh, the, 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 the fairness of um, articulating their stance as well as I understand it. Yeah. Got it. How organized a movement is libertarianism compared to, say, the conservative movement, which has, you know, conferences and platforms and talking points and long-term planning? Uh, yeah, it's funny. I mean, one answer is that they're horrifically disorganized. You know, th- this is a fringe philosophy. And the ones who came to Grafton in particular were like the fringe of the fringe, right? So there is a National Libertarian Party. They are so idealistic. You know, because they've never been in charge of anything, they haven't had to like compromise that much with reality. And so they tend to be very, very um, idealistic you know, to have ideas that are very consistent, but that have not been tempered by the actual burden of governance. There's a lot of infighting or a lot of like assertion of one group is real libertarianism versus another group that's not and and all of that. So in that sense, they're hopelessly fragmented. They're never going to get their act together. We shouldn't worry about them too much. But the other view of that is that the difference between libertarians and more mainstream conservatives in the Republican Party is shrinking. And Mm -hmm. we're we're all talking so much about the pandemic and how society ought to respond to that. And the banner of medical freedom that's been used to argue against vaccinations and mask wearing and social distancing, it's been a real bridge between libertarian ideals and Republican talking points. And so they're hopelessly disorganized on their own, but their sway and their influence on the national political stage is growing. And that's particularly true in New Hampshire, which is where they've um, been most concentrated with, with their power. And so there's, there's all sorts of wacky stuff happening in New Hampshire. What's the situation in Grafton now for people and for bears? <laughs> um, I wish I could say things were better. In a sense that they are because the Freetown Project fizzled out around 2016 uh, when this bigger project called the Free State Project came online. And so it was basically the same exact idea, but for the entire state of New Hampshire instead of Grafton. 
uh, once the Free State Project launched, libertarians with that mindset could move anywhere in the state and still feel like they were part of something special. And why would they go to mm-hmm. Grafton? They'd ruined Grafton. <laughs> it had bears everywhere. Yeah. It had no municipal services <laughs> anymore. Well, wouldn't you rather go to- There's a whole state to ruin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. right. <laughs> there are some municipal services we haven't killed yet. Let's go to the place with the tennis courts. Let's go to the place with the uh, roads that you that are drivable. They've by and large died out in Grafton, but interestingly, the town has not like made a real concerted effort to make up for the the lost ground and the damage. You know, you would think that their response would be, "Geez, okay, now these libertarians have died out. Let's boost taxes and and try to build a community and some civic pride." But in fact, uh, that they've continued to uh, strangulate their own municipal budget even further. So, so the town itself is much the worse for wear, and the libertarians have moved on. Now, the bears, no one is measuring the impact of the bears in town, but the basic fundamental problems that created the bear problem are still in play. Those same dynamics are still shaping bear culture uh, in a negative and frightening way. We always say at the beginning of every episode that we use books as a way to explore questions that fascinate us. And I feel like that statement has never been more true than it is for this episode. The story Matt tells and the connections he makes between wildlife and political movements and viruses and what people need and are entitled to in order to survive and how lacking basic necessities reverberates far beyond what you might imagine. Where else would you find all of that but in a book? And books aren't all that expensive and you can hold them in your hands or press play and listen to them. It's like they're a dream. Yes. And that's that's it for this episode of Book Dreams. Thanks so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. As always, you can reach us at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Matt on Twitter at HH underscore Matt and online at www.matt-hongoldshetling.com. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eviohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Come, come listen to Book Dreams with Julie and me.